1: All right, guys, it's Friday, which means it's time to get into the DFS weeds. I had to bring on a ringer, a man I've never done a show with, the showdown king, an individual who has to corral Davis Matic while making projections every single week, is, of course, Colin Drew, a.k.a. Drewby. How we doing, buddy? Doing
2: good. I was, uh, I was blessed to get an invite. You know, last year when I was actually the showdown king, couldn't get an invite, couldn't get on the show. I relinquish the crown to you, and I lo- start losing a lot of money, tweet about losing a lot of money, and then you invite me on immediately.
1: Yeah, you know what? You you were making a run at my Deposit King uh, moniker there, <laughs> and then you low-key, you know, we were talking about the show, what we are going to talk about, and you just happened to include some screenshots, and I'm like, oh, oh, Drewby just casually had a 50K bink on FanDuel last week, 15K bink on DraftKings, and uh, based on your tweet, it seemed like that helped uh, turn your season around.
2: Yeah, we had we have to keep funding the showdown habit until we're able to get back to even on showdown for the year. <laughs> are you
1: are do you max enter the
2: big showdown contests on most slates? I, I mostly max enter the ones on DraftKings. Anytime it's a $10 price point, that's a max enter for me. When it's $15, I'll I'll run 150 and I'll see if I like the full set. I'll see if there're a bunch of like dupes in there and I might enter less than that. So, um if I only have hundred lineups that I feel good about when it's at $15 price point, I might not max enter that one. So I like it better when they keep it at 10 bucks, but
1: yeah, I think, uh, you know, this isn't traditionally, a, a showdown show, but I am, you know, curious as someone who has been, uh, playing showdown, trying to learn, get better at it this year. Have there been any kind of bigger trends that you have noticed this year? I mean, I, I assume the fields are getting sharper. Duplicates are more of an issue. Anything that you're trying to, uh, figure out on the fly here.
2: Yeah, definitely that it seems like that's the case. And you know, the past two years, my like well, my results were a lot better, but that was running like unsustainably hot. Um, I would say like the top one percent for me, the metrics have decreased each consecutive year. I think the field is getting sharper. There's a lot better content out there. I'd say two years ago, there were probably one or two places putting out showdown content. And now basically every place has it. And for the most part, there is some really good stuff out there. And so that's made it harder. And the way I typically was building was heavily correlated lineups and that's sort of where the, the chatter has started to lead people. And so I think the way that I was building specifically is an approach that a lot more people are using. And so that's led to a lot more duplicates. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like anything in DFS, it's it's always getting harder and it's you got to stay ahead of the curve. And I feel like there's some parallels to that and, you know, how people are using stacking strategies that may evolve over the next couple of years as well.
1: And what are your what contests do you typically play on the main slate? Are you an opto MME bro? Are you a, a hand builder there? What's uh, what's that like for you? Yeah. So I like
2: I mean, for the past like five years, I was definitely more of a hand builder, like grinded it in the three max, like the $150 power sweep is probably my favorite tournament. And then diversify through like lower stakes three max contests. I have over like last two years started to mme a little bit more. Um, I usually mme on FanDuel where the price point is cheaper. They've got like a three dollar, a nine dollar, and the four dollar milli there that all have either a lot of upside or good payout structures, so you can get a little bit of the best of both worlds without having to like shell out three k to mme. Um, so uh, this year I've mostly been mmeing on FanDuel and then doing all my three max stuff on DraftKings
1: do you find your MME sets or your hand build sets to be um, like reflective of your your overall player pool or is one set generally maybe a hedge on the other? Um, it's definitely not a hedge. I, I would
2: say I try to approach them differently. Obviously with the 3MAX stuff, I opto build, but I, I like to say it's self-complete by hand. So it's it's like a hand edit and trying to make sure that you're still working within whatever the optimizer kind of thinks is overall good macro builds. um, And then edit those for any twists with the MME stuff. I just customize the settings based on the field size and try to run it that way and not think too much about it.
1: How, I mean, I, I assume you have a pretty dialed in process, you know, the thought of trying to make my hand build lineups and do content and do all of that, and then run an MME set uh, after an active seems overwhelming and daunting to me. Do you feel like um, you're getting pulled in a lot of directions, and it's hard to get everything completed, or are you dialed in to where you feel comfortable juggling those those different game types?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think um, if it's like a really heavy news slate where something unexpected happens at inactives, then it, that can be a little bit of a struggle. Um, if it's not a heavy news slate and the stuff that comes out doesn't really impact the three max or overall like macro slate, then I think those are usually pretty set, you know, Sunday mornings like you you're doing content. I'm usually updating projections and doing lineup alerts for daily roto and emailing out all the inactives. And um, so I spend all my time kind of doing that in the morning and setting my MME rules and then I, I don't run anything for MME until after the inactives come out.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, that definitely uh, makes sense. I've I've learned that the hard way too uh, with my showdown stuff. Where I'm like, oh, I, I got some time yeah. in the afternoon. Let's make some line. It's like, no, no, no. It, you just have to absolutely wait until those inactives come in. Otherwise, you're going to be uh, redoing it. Although I was so stubborn. I'm trying to update my showdown process a little bit. And that Des Bryant news came out, you know, 15 minutes before as I'm trying to implement a new process. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm eating the negative EV. I'm not redoing this. It's too (laughs) demoralizing right now.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That one was a big scramble. And it's cause it's like the first priority for us has to be getting information out to customers. Like anybody who's doing content and projections, that's kind of the number one priority. And so you like do that global swap everything. And then you try to rerun everything and it, it like ends up being, you know, can you figure it out loud in 10 minutes? And I was able to luckily that slate. but some slates you're just not able to.
1: And talk to me a little bit about, uh, you had the tweet the other day of, you know, that you were going through a big downswing. You had the big week uh, this past week. Uh, is your style of play on the main slates very similar to kind of showdown as well, where you do have to be bracing yourself for these long kind of GPP droughts? Yeah, I think so. And like the- Oh, can you guys hear Druby? I think, Druby, you just got muted accidentally. It's showing on on your screen that you're muted. Can you guys still hear me and just not Druby? Can you- oh, there you go. Are we here? Y- yeah, you're, I can hear you now, but you sound lighter, like maybe you're not coming through on your mic. Sorry, guys. Here, while Druby, <laughs> I'll read his lips while he figures it out. Yeah, I think you were muted for a second. Now you're back, but it didn't seem like it was picking up your mic. Now I can hear you. We good? I think I got, yeah, we, we're good now. We're good. Sorry. Yeah. Um. So I just asked you about, can you hear me? As as Druby's figuring out his settings here, uh, we got Siler in the chat. Someone asked about So I can't hear you,
2: but I can hear a test.
1: Weird. You huh, you can't you can't hear me now, huh? Do you want to uh, do you want to drop off and then come back on? Do, 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 do. Sorry guys, we're gonna get Druby figured out here. Um to to. to I'm gonna have him drop off and pop back on. Um, real quick, why Drewby is doing this. Uh, let's see here. Someone was asking about the DraftKings League. Uh th- it did fill. It filled. Um, I've been posting it, I think, on like Tuesdays or Wednesdays. If you are in the league. You get notified. Uh, I also try to post the link in the Discord, which Siler will drop in here. We need to tell DraftKings to make it bigger. They it literally caps at 200. Can't do any more than that. And and so I don't know. I don't know. You know, my my DK rep isn't taking my calls. And uh, and that's just what the deal is. Do we have Drooby back? Can you hear me?
2: I can hear you. That was Boom. weird.
1: Okay. So let's pick up right where we did. I was asking you about um, kind of the GPP drought life and the way you're playing if you're having to brace for those long stretches of of not winning.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely, the way I'm playing, I think I you do have to brace for that. I'm pretty conservative. Like I'm only playing one to 3% of my bankroll on a slate. So from that perspective, I know I'm able to kind of withstand it without going broke or anything like that. But Yeah, I mean, this was like a downswing dating back basically to the pandemic. Like, I won the Fantasy Hockey World Championship, like literally the last live final any of these sites had. And then a week after that, the whole country shuts down. And then all these, like, all sports start to spin up a little bit. I got really lucky in CSGO early and in KBO. So I was like, oh, I'm going to crush the all sports (laughs) over the course of this pandemic. And then the next four months between that and PGA... And then like the start of NFL season was showdown and it was just like a, a slow bleed for like four to five months. And obviously as you're going through that, like it's, it's hard. You have to find ways to evaluate whether or not it's variance, whether or not it's stuff that you shouldn't be doing. It's always a combination of that stuff. And then we had a bunch of changes that daily roto going on during that time as well. So you're trying to adjust to that stuff as well. So it was a lot to kind of tease out. Um, but there are some good tools out there with like rotor tracker where You can kind of track how you're doing in certain performance percentiles that I was able to kind of isolate things to avoid and then things where I still had a good process, but was just like running on the bad side.
1: When you're going through one of those droughts, are you scaling back your volume or is your bankroll management dialed in to where you are able to absorb these swings and get down as much as you'd like each slate?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I would say I'm like, I'm playing very conservatively generally because, well, it's hard because it's, I don't necessarily have a defined bankroll. I know I would not be willing to lose all the profit I've made from <laughs> DFS, but um, I don't know to what extent I would be willing to put it back. And uh, so that's one of the things that's hard, but I am playing pretty conservatively. And so because of that, I can kind of keep playing the same amount. There were some, um, some things I would chop off just because I didn't necessarily think I was having an edge in those places anymore but for the most part i was able to just kind of keep keep at it
1: yeah and and i know just from my own experience last year when i was extremely awful at dfs and i was losing and you start to make suboptimal decisions because you're playing scared and so that's what i've learned about the bankroll management is like i always have to have enough in play that I feel comfortable making optimal decisions, even if it means I'm going to brick out for a few weeks in a row.
2: Yeah. And that's like the word tilt does enter DFS. It's not like the tilt entering showdown or anything like that. It's like this thing that starts to eat into what an optimal process is and make you question things that may actually be the right way to approach things. And then if you're like, man, I don't want to lose this slate. So I'm going to like try to match the field on the chalk and like, I think you can definitely go on tilt from that perspective. And that's one of the hardest things to try to combat when you're going through one of those stretches.
1: And especially, Do you get this? Like, I, I'll get it a little bit. You know, I was uh, I had a, a nice win earlier in the season. And then I had like two or three weeks where I was finishing like near dead last in the spy with some of these lineups. And I'm getting these comments. Why is this guy? Why is Roto Grinders have this guy on his video? He just finished last place in the spy. <laughs> do you get that thing as a content creator that is also playing, you know, very uh, a volatile style a first or last style where people you know, think like, oh, this guy sucks because he hasn't won in two months now. How do you deal with that?
2: <laughs> yeah, I like luckily, I, I mean, our content is mostly for subscribers. I'm not quite as public a figure as you. So <laughs> there aren't people necessarily jumping down my throat. But I I do think, I mean, I answer like support emails for us too. And so it's yeah. like you get emails from people that are like, projections sucked last night. <laughs> like <laughs> the optimal went 0 for 20 or whatever. And you're yeah. like, okay, like that's uh, that's nice. But I think that is one of the harder things is, especially when you're going through that too, is you want to feel like you're putting out good information for people as well. And if people are relying on you for strategy or or plays and things like that, I mean, you obviously have responsibility there as well in addition to whatever you're working through from a DFS player.
1: Well, don't you have the perfect shield for that when people complain about projections? You can just say, oh, I think Davis must've gotten in there and tinkered with them at the <laughs> last second.
2: Yeah, exactly. Working with Davis is pretty funny because he's, um, I mean, we have like this, framework for daily roto that we've had for the past few years so like the fundamental modeling is always extremely solid but in football you're always tweaking inputs on a week-to-week basis for like target shares and things like that so there's definitely some judgment and after like working with davis for well last year too but then this year more in depth and you know like the blind spots so you're like okay like i'm checking the bills right now and i know he's going to short cold beasley because he's like this white slot receiver so yeah
1: Yeah, I imagine he's going in there giving Michael Pittman a 30% target share, T.Y. Hilton 5%, and you have to go in there and kind of get him closer. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, not quite as big as that, but those are definitely, anytime there's like a young hype guy off of like a good week or when like Larry Fitzgerald is on COVID and Andy Isabella is activated, you're like, okay, I'm going to have to look at Arizona a lot closer this week. (laughs)
1: I asked, uh, I told Leonie, I was having you on the show. And I said, uh, you know, what What are some things I should ask Drew? And he said, I want to hear, uh, ask him what it's like to uh, to do projections with Davis.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like this constant state of fear. You like run the optimizer and you're just like, sometimes scared that something happened with like a young guy. And yeah, you also like the guys who are great. Like, I think the hardest things for someone who's like definitely gotten more math-based, but wasn't necessarily naturally there a couple of years ago is like trusting that. And so- I think like the tight end situation with like Corey Davis actually establishing a clear role after like being just awful the for a, like a, a year stretch, maybe longer than that. Like that has been something that has been hard to adjust to, too.
1: Well, and you mentioned Corey Davis here, which he was your cash cow from last week. I was reviewing some lineups on Monday and I had the Tannehill double stacks, but I had them with A.J. Brown in Firxer. How did you get on Corey Davis when AJ Brown wasn't going to be too highly owned. And also let me know what uh contest this was.
2: Yeah. So this was the $33 five max. So this would have been a team oh, yeah. where I make like the power sweep teams. So there's two power sweeps each week. So I always enter those and I kind of have usually uh like three different stacks. Um, So in the, and I diversify those down through each power sweep and then down through the lower stakes five max and three max contests. So this would have started where maybe my core power sweep might've been a Tannehill, Corey Davis, AJ Brown, or it might've been a Tannehill, AJ Brown, Um, And then this would have been a diversified version of that stack kind of iterating off of that core. And I think, I mean, Corey Davis had been seeing a similar target volume, slightly less than AJ Brown. And even in the games where Brown was active, that was still the case. Brown definitely a stronger touchdown rate and stronger like red zone targets and things like that. But with John who out, I felt like that opened up some of that as well. And that was reflected in the projections and he was going to be pretty low on, but it was really the salary difference between the two that, that drove that. And that was something where I was able to get up to Delvin cook and just going into last week, Aaron Jones was one of the running backs that we felt like provided the highest percent chances as far as optimal lineup probability compared to his ownership. And so that was more of a, a flexible thing that let me spend on these running backs. And it was um, just like liking Corey Davis outright better than AJ Brown.
1: Now, now uh, I have a couple of questions following up here. So in this one, you had primarily 1 PM guys going and your 1 PM guys smashed. Austin Eckler was kind of the chalk running back. People were playing in the late games um, I actually ended up pivoting, you know, some combinations of uh, Eckler and Carson to like Devonta or uh, off of Devonta Adams to um, Aaron Jones and DeAndre Hopkins. I guess what I'm saying, did you consider going to the chalky or Eckler because your early lineup smashed? So I
2: didn't go to Eckler in, in this one specifically. I had the Patriots D. There wasn't um, another D I necessarily could get to at that same price point. But what probably was a mistake was, like, Tyler Lockett. And in general, the, you're right, like, this lineup smashed early. The pieces were all low-owned. Corey Davis, like, Higgins. I think there was some concern that Waller would just be the optimal. And, like, yeah. so I didn't really overthink things there. But um, I think when you look at this, like, Lockett definitely seems like it was a potential pivot. And if I had moved down from him to somebody else, um, then I might have been able to get up onto Waller one of the D's that projected better, but obviously the Patriots, they ended up being one of the big reasons that I shipped it or came second.
1: And that's kind of a nice thing then to think about that of like, oh, you kind of assuming you're having to chase these Waller teams uh, and making sure you kind of stayed on, you know, your conviction plays and the kind of lower owned pivots there. That's always a a nice thing because I, I struggle with that a lot too because there is in a contest of this size, there's still so many variables that are hard to weigh of like how aggressive, do I need to be with my, my uniqueness versus just letting a team ride?
2: Yeah. And I think the other thing that was looming in this was like the Devonte Adams at whatever, I think we thought he would be 35%. I don't know where he landed in this specific tournament, but you know that like you spent on cook, he had a good, but not exceptional game. And you have this looming Devonte Adams spend coming at you too. So that's another thing to consider. And just also the, one of the hardest things I would say when, you, you have like your three max lineups and then you have a full MME set where there's, there's a lot of different things going on at four o'clock or three forty five as you're thinking about late swap, like in these lotteries with, you know, 200 K to first or 50 K to first, like you're trying to look at, you know, 50 teams that may have a chance in the right scenarios and adjust there. And so um, I guess that's one of the other, one of the benefits would be if you're playing only, you know, six or 10 lineups that you're able to focus all your efforts on those.
1: I wanted to ask you about that comment you said about these being kind of iterative of your maybe main 3 max teams because it's funny you say that cuz I play this $33 5 max as well and generally what I'm doing I'm playing the two spies, the two red zones and and maybe some other contest and then I'll just toss all five of those lineups in this contest the $33 5 max. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think it's more optimal to make some tweaks on those or try to like maximize all right, if one of these lineups are hits I can you know win a bunch of different contests that's something I I always wrestle with yeah
2: I I think if you're not sacrificing a ton in terms of like projection then I'd rather just have a another lineup with another shot at it unless you have a ton of conviction in that lineup and um, it might be where like you make the best the best lineup is in all of them but it is a five max and and so you can put like the same lineup in twice and then just tweak it slightly so you still have your best lineup in each of them and um maybe you rotate out not necessarily like the core stack pieces but maybe you rotate out like the the one or two one-offs that you have left in there
1: nice and let's um let's take a look at this fan lineup uh this was a, a huge bink here with the card to waller and you also got Corey davis in there uh as a one-off it looks like was this uh an mme team
2: yeah, this was MME. This was um, I think this one was in the nine dollars. So what I did what, for MME was I made three hundred lineups for both the three dollar and the nine dollar, and I just like randomly u- use that Rand XL function to enter them into those contests. The three dollar and the nine dollar have similar style payout structures, similar field sizes, so I think the overall approach from like an optimizer setting perspective is pretty similar. So I felt like I'd. I could just get three hundred lineups into those instead, and yeah, I think this one was pretty interesting. Um, obviously, Fanduel you don't have the ability to export the CSV and see how other people played their Car Waller stacks, but you do on DraftKings and on DraftKings and the MilliMaker. Fifty percent of people that played Car and Waller brought it back with a jet. In the Power Sweep, seventy-five percent of people that played Car and Waller brought it back with a jet, and so this lineup did not bring it back with a jet. And even though I got mediocre miles gaskin numbers kind of mediocre cooper cup and michael thomas numbers because i had Corey davis and Corey davis was likely mostly attached to titan stacks uh, because i had a him and waller in the patriots d that was basically all that you needed
1: yeah that's interesting and i'm um, i mean obviously you don't have to give uh all of your special sauce but when you are running your mme sets i assume you're doing a few runs with like you know single stack no bring back single stack one bring back like did you set specific rules to not bring jets back here so i
2: i don't set specific rules to not bring it back but i think that the way that stacking you know you think about correlation and if pricing is extremely efficient then correlation is one of the most important things along with ownership and um fanduel's pricing structure is a little bit softer so like Those Jets players, while they may be good value at their salary on DraftKings, on FanDuel, it's more touchdown heavy, and they have one of the lowest team totals, and the pricing is just a little bit softer, so you can get good players at cheap prices. And so um, what I do is I set up these key boost rules, and I let the optimizer kind of tell me if, the based on the, the salaries and the projections and these boost rules, if there's enough value to bring it back. And so... I'll just run it as a set of 300 lineups and some of the lineups will be double stacked. Some will be single stacked, Some will mix and bring backs and that'll all be kind of price and projection um, oriented based on the slate.
1: Yeah. And and that's one of the main things I wanted to dive into today for the kind of main chunk of the show. And so we can use some of these examples. Um, I have like lots of questions surrounding this, I guess from like a macro sense. Um, do you think about these teams and offenses um, on very individual levels? So like, You have teams playing the Jets where we've seen this play out. They teams can get there through the passing game and the bringbacks don't necessarily have to get there. Or we see it with the Chiefs where their big three can put up a ton of points and the bringbacks don't necessarily have to get there. And then we'll see more guys, maybe mobile quarterbacks and more middling to good offenses, say like the Vikings or Matt Ryan and the Falcons, where they need the other opposition pushing the pace to force them to throw. So how do you think about, I guess, the contextual differences of when you need to force a bring back versus when it's okay not to?
2: Yeah, I would say that like the contextual differences is something I'm for sure taking into account when I'm hand building or hand editing a lineup is trying to think about that. Like the yeah, like you said, the Vikings are a good example. Uh, the Titans would be another good example where they have highly efficient... Passing games and they can, they have high team totals, but the passing volume is likely to be low unless they get into a bad game script. Um, and so I, d- I do think that stuff matters. But I think one of the things that's just interesting is as content keeps talking about this, and, you know, we've been double stacking and bringing it back for a few years now, but it's become exceedingly popular this year to the point where 50% of people in the millimaker Maker were doing it and 75% of people in a higher stakes stuff. So if you're in these contests filled with like DFS regs who are listening to 10 hours of content a week, like they're going to be aware of that strategy.
1: Yeah. I'm also curious here. So Corey Davis as a one-off and I, again, I don't know all the, the rules or boosts and stuff you're doing. If Corey Davis was projecting, let's say for like 15 to 20% ownership as a more chalky player, do you think he ends up in your MME set or ends up in a lineup like this as a one-off? Um,
2: so the, I usually do use some projected ownership cap. That's more of a feel thing, but it's somewhere between like 135 and 145%. Um, and so that might prevent something where David Montgomery and Miles Gaskin and Cooper Cup and Dalvin Cook and a 20% owned Corey Davis will get in there. Um, but I just because a guy is popular doesn't mean I would only play him in game stacks. Unless that would only really start to think about it if he was like one of the three most popular plays at a position.
1: Yeah, so I'd gotten a question from Clay in the Discord and he was just talking uh, if there's some good guidelines or he used the word guardrails for, you know, we all know we're we're starting with a stack. Maybe it's a double stack. What is then the first question you start to ask yourself if you are going to, you know, hand build a bring back there versus maybe go with an uncorrelated piece that you like more?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, I I wouldn't say I have like perfect guidelines. Our, our guy Clay, he tried to equate the Raiders to the Jets, though. That was that was <laughs> a little offensive, Clay. But, uh, yeah,
1: I'll, I'll I'll read what he said. He said, "Uh, he goes especially if the bring back options aren't clear and there's uncertainty between who a shitty team would be an ideal bring back to your main stack, double stack." Thinking about teams like the Jets, Raiders, and Bengals, for example. It's true. He was like, "Wait, you stuck in the Raiders there?"
2: They, they make the playoffs this year, Clay. But uh, no, <laughs> I I do think you know. Unfortunately, there's not a perfect answer because it's going to be pricing specific and slate specific. Um, I would, I would think, you know, if there's no, so I guess we're thinking about what the correlation is between a quarterback and an opposing team wide receiver one. And think like one of the first old school stacking matrices from like four for four show that to be like 0.1 or something like that. And maybe in a, a quarterback that hits its ceiling, it's a little bit higher than that. So maybe you could say it's like a 0.15 or something. So if somebody is within, if two guys are projected equal to each other and you're just going on correlation, then you definitely want the correlation because that guy is going to you know outperform by 15% or so. But if one guy at the same price is projected like 30% higher, then I don't think the correlation is enough necessarily to trump that. Um, and that's before you kind of start to think about how the field is playing. And if 75% of Devonte Adams and Aaron Rodgers stacks this week are going to have Marvin Jones. Like, do you want to play Marvin Jones in there with 75% of the people? Or do you want to play Corey Davis at the exact same price, the exact same projection? But Corey Davis is not going to be tied to those stacks. He's going to be tied to tight ends and Jag stacks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So would that almost be a thing? Because I, I definitely, when I start building my lineups or my shells, you know, I'm, I'm generally putting in the stack I want with the bring back and then building from there. I know sometimes people talk about, oh, I'll leave tight end or defense open until the end and see what I have left. Is this almost maybe a note to leave that bring back spot available? And then when you come back and you're filling that out to see what what fits there as opposed to starting with that?
2: Yeah, or I mean, or you could start and then once you kind of go through that process and set the lineup, figure out like how far off what you think is optimal is like, are you sacrificing a lot to jam in this bring back that you don't really like just so you can tell everybody that you brought it back or like, does this guy actually feel like a really strong play? Um,
1: in, in and maybe it, one specific example, no, sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, just like, it's also just the overall
2: roster. So that DraftKings lineup that I did well with last week, like I ate the chalk at running back kind of played all the highest owned players there, ate the chalk at tight end. So this was like a pretty consensus build there. But where it was specifically unique was with, like, the Tannehill, with Corey Davis. I knew Aaron Jones was going to be 6 to 10%, and the Higgins bring back was not going to be popular at all. So um, I, I think it's generally good to look for the correlation, and especially if you're talking about punting a spot or punting a tight end, I'd rather, like, punt a spot with correlation or punt a tight end with correlation.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, um, you know, one other question we had gotten, and I feel like it's uh, instructive because you did have this uh, lineup on FanDuel with the bringback is Lex had asked, uh, is there a significant difference between the viability of bringbacks on DK versus FanDuel? I think that with FanDuel being less volume focused, you'd benefit less from the correlation caused by pace as compared to DraftKings. Do you have any thoughts on bringbacks uh, that are site, site specific? Uh oh. I think Drewby froze here again. Drewby did warn me uh, ahead of time that he might get booted from his internet uh, and then come back. So we will give Drewby a second to unfreeze. He's on that David Kitchen internet plan. While I am vamping, please subscribe to the channel. Just passed 2,500 subs on my channel. My parents are so proud of me. They said, um, We couldn't give you big, beautiful lips, but we gave you the skills. To run up a DFS YouTube channel to 2,500 people, hit the like button. Drewby will be back in a second. We got Siler in the chat. He's been posting some links to the Discord. It's uh, the Discord has been awesome, honestly. They uh, we even just spun up NBA DFS talk. There's NBA season long talk going in there. If you guys want to come and hang out and chat strategy with like minded individuals, that is the place to do it. I'm trying to think any other housekeeping things going on here. Um, If, if you are new, Oh, we got drew back. We got drew.
2: He's back. of The year two drops
1: (laughs) that, Hey, that you're, you're a DJ man. You're just, just waiting for the beat to draw. I told people you warned me. So, uh, so we're back. We're back. Where did we, uh, where did we leave off? Um, Yeah. So Lex's question
2: was about the viability of bringbacks between the two sites. I would say a general rule of thumb is there's more correlation on DraftKings because of the PPR and because of the yardage bonuses. So there's definitely more correlation overall on that site. Also would say that the pricing overall is sharper on DraftKings. And so it's it's more efficient. Guys are usually priced closer to what their roles are going to be than on FanDuel, where sometimes there can be some guys that maybe are a little bit underpriced um, at specific positions for a longer period of time. So I think in general, um, if you view a slate as having really strong, tight pricing, then correlation in in bringbacks matters more. If you view it as closer to a pick'em slate with lots of values, then I don't think you have to force things quite as much.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, this year, because like with the tilt space lineups that I've been making with Leone and Holka, we're in the higher buy and smaller field stuff. And I feel like kind of two of the trends I've seen are a lot of like optimal lineups that aren't very correlated where guys are just getting in, you know, the quote unquote best plays. And then, you know, specifically with working with Leone, like his style too, of almost overstacking these games, where it's like instead of even just trying to get the classic double stack with a bring back, it's like, okay, we're gonna get four or five guys in from this game and just hope we are right about the game. And so I think that's also an interesting thing about how the contest size impacts whether you need the bring backs or not.
2: Definitely. And the contest size matters a lot. Like, how close to the optimal lineup do you need to have in order to win this contest? And in those small field stuff, you don't have to be that close to optimal. Um, in the larger field lotteries, millimaker types, you have to be very close to optimal. And that's going to be, you know, less likely to be one of these perfectly correlated lineups.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, um, Again, you know, we, we talk about this a lot because we're, we're talking about strategies and they can be incredibly specific to the contest sizes you're playing on. I, I have a feeling a lineup that Druby would build for a 300 person contest would be massively different than one you would build for this FanDuel 33,000 entry contest.
2: Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to do that. I would say even in MME, like if you're building for the FanDuel 30,000 person contest, you should build that differently in MME than you should for the 225,000 person contest um, than you would for a 1500 person contest. And that stuff can be hard if you're just using an optimizer and try to automate your process. But I do think it is for sure important. And I think especially the way you like knowing Mike and he's not usually playing the chalk game and jamming five players in it's usually one of the lower owned top four games. And um, when you're doing that, I think, you know, the correlation, you definitely want added correlation because it's not going to be a consensus build from the people who are game stacking. For
1: sure. Um, I feel like this is a good question that's also going to be kind of specific to this slate where we now have this interesting scenario where Denzel Mims is ruled out. We have Jamison Crowder who popped up on the injury report and looks truly questionable for this game. So Perriman is going to catch a ton of ownership this week, because people are going to be excited to play the Seahawks and Paramin is going to look like a cheap, clean, obvious correlated bring back. How would you think about that situation if you said in a kind of play whoever you want way, hey, I want to have a Russell Wilson to DK Metcalf stack. How can I do that in a smart way if we know ownership's going to condense on Perriman?
2: Yeah, and then you're right. And it will especially condense on Paramin for people who decide to double stack Russ. Because in addition to wanting that game environment, you also now need the salary savings if you're going to double stack Russ. So double stacking Russ with the the Jets bring back, you've now used like three of your wide receiver spots on this game and you've, you've got your quarterbacks tied up. So I think your options there would, like you'd probably have to go reasonably contrarian at the running back position, kind of depending how you end up seeing the ownership of the Seattle passing game shaking out. And that would be the first level that I would think about it. The other option is just like, Jameson Crowder doesn't re- really matter to Pearman. He does a little bit, but like Braxton Berrios would be the guy who steps into the slot role. Like he was getting targeted 20 to 24% of the time when he was playing when Crowder was hurt earlier. And so if you view like a wide disconnect between the ownership of Pearman and Berrios, then perhaps you slot in Berrios and you keep the correlation there. Um, and then maybe you can, because you're getting like a maybe a 3% guy at wider receiver instead of a 15%, then maybe you can just play some of the better running back players in that build.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, just another kind of general build question. We had looked at that um, Titans stack that you had run out here. Do you find yourself in your hand builds generally going with kind of the contrarian game stack pieces and then jamming more chalk running backs, or is it very uh, slate dependent?
2: Yeah, it's definitely slate dependent. This last week, I was trying to get, you know, some... Cousins stacks that had Derrick Henry and some Tannehill stacks that had Dalvin Cook and get kind of the exposure to both those games. If either one of them went lopsided in like the perfect direction, Um, they ended up both going lopsided in a pass heavy direction. So it didn't necessarily work out perfectly. um, But that was one of the things that I was thinking about last week where you're getting exposure to the chalky running back with a contrarian passing stack and vice versa.
1: This is another question. We kind of touched on it last week. Uh, I was talking to Stuart Gibson from Advanced Sports Analytics about correlations. I would say if you guys missed that show and want to go back and watch it, a lot of good evergreen concepts there. But uh, Sesk here asks, what do you make of running back and opposing receiver correlations in general? And maybe just this other idea of secondary correlations. I definitely find myself, you know, when I'm looking at plays I like, I'm like, oh, Marvin Jones and Cole Komet last week, you know, let's try to identify a game and some pieces here. Are those secondary correlations something you're considering or more just kind of if it works out serendipitously?
2: Yeah. I think generally, if you look, the running back and like opposing wide receiver correlations are extremely low. Now every team is going to be specific. um, And you know, every player is going to have different correlations, but I think that correlation is pretty low. Whereas the passing game correlations are a little bit higher. So I think in a hand build, I do try to think about that stuff the best I can. And if I can, you know, if there are guys at the same price point that are available, that project as good values where I can get the correlation in, it would make sense more so in the past game than like an RB one. But um, maybe there are certain running backs that do correlate better than others. And, you know, pass catching running backs are different. I think the other cool thing that you and Stuart talked about was just some of the player specific correlations. And that's another thing with bring backs that people don't think about quite as much as, you know, a, a guy with a 30% target share is going to make for a better bring back than a guy with a 15% target share, relatively speaking.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think, that you see that happening too, especially if like the cheap guy is, you know, we can use the jets examples again. I I've been someone who's been chasing these, you know, Denzel Mims breakouts uh, because he's cheap and, you know, he's correlated with the stacks, but then we've seen the games where it's Crowder, you know, he has the bigger target share, even maybe a bigger, larger red zone share. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's some, a nice concept too, if you get unique on the bring back and you're getting the guy with a bigger target share.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, would say that this stuff becomes more important like as games continue to get tougher and i was curious like your thoughts you saw that 75 percent of people with the car waller stack and the power sweep had jets players like that starts to feel like it's getting to a level where like people are doing it too much versus like the lower stakes more public contests where it's still not quite there
1: yeah and i think the thing that just trips me up and you know i was kind of mentioning that before of like with what teams and the way they play and their pace and their kind of, you know, pass expectancy in certain situations, who needs to have their foot on the gas to continue pushing? And I think that's why I mentioned like the Chiefs and teams going against the Jets as being a little bit unique in that we've seen them get there without necessarily having to be forced to get there themselves. And now like the Seahawks, now we got actually two colliding perfect examples where, If you think it's early Seahawks, like they're an absolute jam, but now we have Pete Carroll trying to revert the offense to the 1950s. Like, how do you, how do you think about that in, in that situation?
2: Yeah, it's tough. One of the pieces of analysis I had done before the season was, uh, or maybe it's even before last season was looking at like four teams that did have double stacks hit. Like, you know, every player scores 20 plus DK points. Like what, how did the wide receiver probabilities look compared to, random wide receivers and other games that were priced similarly. And it looked like the, the double stack with a bring back was about twice as likely to hit as a double stack with just a random uncorrelated wide receiver. And I think if it is twice as likely, obviously that's really strong um, for overall GPPs, but if it's twice as likely and it's 70 times zoned or whatever, it, you know, it would start to get, or not 70 times, three times zoned, then it, it would start to feel like maybe there are some opportunities in the, the more reg filled contest to at least think about it critically versus just going in. Like I'm definitely doing this every week with all my
1: teams. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I want to hit one more question before we uh, build a lineup here because uh, definitely something I want to do with you on this slate to get in the mind of a, a hand builder here. But I had another question from Corey. This is kind of a bigger macro one here. You know, with Drew B being a huge proponent of leverage, is there a specific position or amount of roster spots that he tries to dedicate as leverage spots each week, understanding that each slate is different? And this one also jumps out to me too because – Again, working with Leoti when we build our lineups, I mean, we find some of these where it's like we have every play under 10%, you know? So how do you think about how much leverage is too much? And, uh, and yes, along those lines?
2: Yeah, I think, obviously, the contest size, you're trying to think about that a little bit. It's always hard, because most ownership projections are projecting things for the lotteries. And then, you know, like, the smaller field single entry stuff will be some variation of that. Like the 30% owned wide receiver could become 45%. So that's like one hard thing to wrestle with. But um, at a positional level, generally I would prefer to get contrarian at the wide receiver positions. And I, I think historically like the past three years, that's always what I was trying to do. Wide receiver tight end, try to find the pivots there because those are the projections with like less volume, slightly more volatility associated with them that, you know, I would say the confidence that the field has had in running backs, though, over the past year has started to get to the point where there's like extreme ownership at running backs more often than at wide receiver. And so, um, like last week was a, like, I liked Chris Carson, Aaron Jones, Miles Gaskin a lot last week as running backs that felt like had outsized upside compared to their ownerships. And so that was like, those were some of the guys I was trying to build on, um, last week.
1: One thing I want to ask you about that I just um, had thought of, you know, one of the things that's been really helpful for me this year is, you know, checking in on ownership throughout the week. So you can actually see the movements that are happening. And and one of the reasons I got on Waller on my one of my spy teams last week is because I saw how much his ownership had dropped from, you know, Wednesday to Sunday morning. Um, I'm curious how you like, because I I had people asking me like well if you thought he was going to be at you know uh, ten to eleven percent and you said you would have jammed him at six percent why is that five percent meaningful can you talk a little bit about kind of ownership movements and maybe specific thresholds that jump out to you and scream like oh this is a situation I want to now capitalize on or hey it's just negligible it's just a few ticks
2: yeah um, so ownership moves in general I think. You know, throughout the course of the week for MME, I'm just kind of trusting the final projection. I think the hard part is in the higher stakes stuff that you're playing or the stuff where it's just more people are plugged into the DFS industry and and trying to understand like the obvious pivot spot on Wednesday may end up being like the 20% owned game stack on Sunday for DFS regs, even though it's still low owned and other stuff. And that's definitely one of the things where I feel like it's pretty hard to tease out. As far as um, a threshold, I guess like what I'm trying to understand most weeks is what is this player's probability of landing on the optimal lineup and how does that compare to his ownership? Mm -hmm. So if I'm trying to pull up ours from last week to see where Waller was for that one. But um, I think if you're, you know, if you have that sort of framework in mind, you might think a player has... uh, 25%, like Derrick Henry last week, we had a 25% optimal play probability. As it gets above that threshold, that's where I start to think about him being a bad play. Whereas Aaron Jones, we had as a 15% optimal play probability, but we had him projected at like 5% ownership. So there was a big disconnect there that I think identified Aaron Jones as a potential leverage play.
1: Yeah, that seems like a really good way to compare it. How do you guys calculate optimal play probability? Yeah, um.
2: It, it was originally a Leone model from when he was working at Daily Roto and uh, Andrew Barron's kind of been optimizing it this year. And so um, they're looking at the projection inputs, the pricing kind of the range of outcomes and errors from associated with those projections in those inputs historically to come up with that. And so it does vary based on slate. It does vary based on site. Um, and it looks like Waller we had as a 12% optimal play probability. So I do think at 10%, he's starting to be efficiently owned. Whereas at 6%, like he is starting to be a leverage play. So I do think like small moves like that matter.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. I think that's a good way to look at it. I, yeah. And, uh, on, uh, Roto grinders, I like looking at, um, Cardi has a smash score, which I think is like a similar concept of, you know, the likelihood that he ends up in a specific, you know, threshold yeah. range of his total projection. Um, Let's build a lineup here. We do have a hard out at 1 p.m. So we have 12 minutes here. I just want to hand build a lineup with Drewby so we can kind of think through uh, the type of things we've been talking about here. You know, maybe we get in a stack and decide if we're going to bring it back or not. Um, I'm going to throw it to my guest here, Drewby. We haven't talked a ton about plays we like again i will always give the caveat this lineup is to figure out how we build not the specific plays i guarantee both druby and i are going to be on different guys by the time 1 p.m rolls around so uh feel free to toss this into a contest if you want to sweat it but that is the caveat we need to give druby do you have a, a play you like as of now
2: Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, one of the guys I liked a lot last week, as of now, there's nothing that would scare me off again this week is Miles Gaskin for the Miami Mm -hmm. Dolphins at running back. Yeah, he had like 80% of the touches last week, and there is some risk that Washington could be back from injury this week, which would, you know, maybe cause a little bit more uncertainty. But like earlier in the season, when he was in this lead running back role, he was still getting 65% of the carries and 15 16% of the targets. So um, I like that role a lot compared to his price tag, assuming that there's no kind of other major issues with the the running backs returning to health in Miami. And I don't think he'll be super popular, but it is a game where, you know, Miami will hope to continue to be aggressive, hopefully more so than they have been with Tua because they'll have to try to keep up with the chiefs,
1: yeah, i I love that call. I think going back to him at at this price is um, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, he could have had thirty points last yeah. week. And people are going to get scared by the Q tag. They're going to get scared by, you know, blowout risk with the Chiefs. Um, They're scared because Tua hasn't been checking down as much. But I just don't think any of those concerns are valid at this price and ownership for his workload. Yeah, Um, I'm going to go a guy that I think might fly under the radar a little bit just because people keep expecting – Christian McCaffrey to be back. I mean, he's now officially doubtful. I'll have to check updated ownership. What's your thought on uh, where Mike Davis's ownership settles? Because he looks like another smash at 6,400 with no, with no McCaffrey.
2: Yeah, we don't have it updated for the McCaffrey news um, yet, but I think he's projected slightly behind like Zeke Elliott. Uh, He's slightly behind some of these other backs who have done well recently. Austin Eckler, David Montgomery types. So I think Mike Davis will settle into like a a five to 10% range and the price tags, it's reasonable on him. And I think the, what we saw like the last three weeks without McCaffrey um, is kind of baked into his price tag. But what we'd seen for the earlier stretch of the season, you do know that there's a little bit more upside above that, where he was playing more like a seven K player in a seven K role.
1: Yeah. All right. So now we have two running backs that I would say aren't going to be too chalky I think we can go in a lot of directions here do you want to take us in the way of a stack or you got another one-off play you want to do
2: <laughs> I was trying to make you force you the make, first and then I toss the it
1: right back to you
2: it's the it's a dance so yeah. I mean I could really tilt you by picking a tight end that potentially would fit within a stack <laughs> but potentially would be played as a one-off um uh so I won't do that though I, I know you're not a Corey Davis man but I like Corey Davis again this week and I think that he's at a price that is pretty good. I think one of the interesting decisions this week is if you're playing Devontae Adams, whether or not to play Marvin Jones or Corey Davis. Um, but I'll go back to Corey Davis in a great matchup. I hope A.J. Brown is active yeah. for this one just because if he's out, then Corey Davis becomes one of the most popular value plays in the slate. Whereas if A.J. Brown is in, like people still aren't going to play Corey Davis to the extent that they should. I don't think he'll probably be 10 10% owned, which I'm still happy with.
1: Yeah, no, I was, I was looking at that too. The core, uh, the AJ Brown, I saw a report this morning that the team, uh, expects him to play. He had been missing Thursday practices every week just for maintenance, but missing the Wednesday had, uh, had me a little concerned, but it sounds like he's going to go. So I think Corey Davis will be fairly on. I'm going to keep kicking the can down the road here on the stack, but maybe pointing us in that direction because in this game on the other side, uh, I like the Jacksonville passing game, and I think DJ Chark looks like uh, another really nice play here. I think he had 132 air yards last week. Uh, Tennessee's secondary, nothing to write home about, and people feel gross playing these Jags. So uh, what do you think about tossing Chark in here?
2: Yeah, I think that Chark is good, and I, I think someone had asked earlier, like are you looking to correlate running back and wide receivers, and you're not really looking to do that, but I think playing Chark with Corey Davis does offer the passing game correlation, sort of that mini stack where we could potentially turn this into a game stack, or we could potentially um, just leave it as a mini stack. And we still have a wide receiver tight end and a flex position to build with. Um, so.
1: we keep think- co- Are we going to continue playing chicken? I'll, 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 I'll step up to the plate if you don't give us a quarterback here, but I'm giving you the chance.
2: Oh man. So the quarterback, you know, I feel like it, it matters the, probably the least overall. Um, as far as like trying to identify the stacks, usually I'm trying to identify leverage wide receivers. Um, And let me see what we got here for
1: leverage wide receiver plays. Yeah. One thing I I had been looking at again is just, and I know he's now away from the confines of the dome, but the, the Taysom Hill to Michael Thomas didn't look too bad to me again.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Taysom held Michael Thomas. Definitely that Taysom seems like you're got a guy you're looking to single stack versus double stack. And the bring back's kind of optional there. Um, I, I'm going to pull, a, a, I think this is a good value move. It's not necessarily going to provide a ton of leverage. I think he's going to be in the 10% range as well. But Robbie Anderson, you know, you have the yeah. DJ Moore targets vacated. Curtis Samuel should play that role. Anderson should definitely be team the targets. Great matchup against Denver. And we're in a situation now where I don't think there's a ton of negative correlation between Mike Davis and Robbie Anderson. If the offense succeeds as a whole, they both can get there. And um, and now we kind of have the opportunity to add Teddy Bridgewater to that and make that part of a game stack. Um, or we have the opportunity to just play those as individual pieces and stack up the Titans-Jags game.
1: Yeah, I was going to say this is, this is interesting here because it really does. Because I feel... Well, this is actually an interesting one where if we do go with Teddy Bridgewater, my inclination would be to do a bring back just because I like a lot of the value on the Denver side. Although I'm scared because, again, I asked Davis, I said, "What? what's something I should ask Drewby, you know, hoping he'd give me something. He goes, just ask him about Tim Patrick. So what well, I guess I'll do that now. What what's the deal with Tim Patrick?
2: No, there's there's no deal about Tim Patrick, but Davis gets like hyped for all these young guys all the time. So like Davis is is ready to jump on like KJ Hamler, which I think is a fine punt option as a bring back. But what I was saying is like Denver, they do have four mouths to feed. Like Tim Patrick's been their most productive wide receiver over this last stretch. He's been the guy in the red zone. Obviously, Judy has more talent. Hamler has some explosive play potential, but then Noah Fant as well. So it's not a situation where it's a narrow targetry, but I agree. And like one of the things I like is I think Denver in general, you know, they have that game with Hinton at quarterbacks, so some of their metrics are skewed. So sometimes models get screwed up on that. And they are pass-aggressive with Drew Locke, and he'll turn the ball over, sure, but he'll still try to push it downfield, and Carolina's defense can definitely give it up. So I, li- I like the potential for bring back. I'm not a Tim Patrick stan by any means, but just... Would, was,
1: would you... Part of me would wonder too, if like, if we did what, like, what do you think of like Bridgewater, Noah Fant? Yeah, I I think either of
2: those would work. Like I'm comfortable with uh, Bridgewater, Noah Fant. I'd be comfortable with Bridgewater, Judy. I'd also be fine with like Bridgewater and Hamler, just depending how that our overall salary structure looks. Once we start to look at like plugging in a D and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, let's go ahead and just put in a defense here. Uh I'll just I have not given much thought to defense. San Francisco at home versus Alex Smith seems fine. Yeah. Um that leaves a 6150 there. I mean, we can we could either go the Denver route and pay up at tight end, or we could go the Noah Fant route and you know get a really nice uh flex option in here. Do you have a lean on those combos?
2: Yeah, I feel like the, I mean, Noah Fant looks pretty good. Like Noah yeah. Fant or Judy, we can, what we can kind of do is, um, yeah, we, we'll just, the options basically would be Kelsey and Judy, right? Versus Fant and a pay-up option at wide receiver
1: or running back. I believe so. Does that fit? Um, yeah. And we could even upgrade. Yeah. No, that yeah. fits about perfectly. So yeah, it's, it's Kelsey, Judy versus Fant and then 8,200 flex. Yeah. So,
2: so let's see what the 8,200 flex options are. I wonder if there's going to be like a clear, cut off. Yeah. So you got Keenan Allen, you got Aaron Jones, hop. There's no one like perfect in there. um, But there are definitely some options.
1: Yeah. And I would say too, like one, just nice tiebreaker. It looks like we have a ton of 1 PM guys. It wouldn't be too bad. You know, if you go in Aaron Jones, you know, a 4 PM, you have options to go to Keenan. You can go to Aaron Jones. You can go to, yeah. So there's some late swap options there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: I think I slightly prefer Kelsey Judy, um, yep. but I, I for sure don't mind fan and Aaron Jones. And this is definitely the thing where I talk about diversifying through three max stakes, where if I toss this and the power sweep and the $33, maybe I make that two V two and upgrade the D or whatever, and just go from there.
0: Yep.
1: And uh, Clay uh, noted Raider hater points out that uh, Kelsey and Gaskin, another little bonus correlation there. If we get some points in that game. So, I like this lineup. I think we built it logically. And what I have to tell these people, uh, I'm going to toss this in something. Please don't dupe us, bros. Don't dupe us. Make a, make a pivot. Please don't dupe us. Put Tim Patrick in there for Davis. Uh, Well, I, I, I really enjoyed getting to talk with you, Drewby. Uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, definitely follow him on Twitter. Check out their stuff at Daily Roto. Lots of great stuff. Him and uh, Davis do uh pod each week as well on the Sports Grid podcast. I like listening to where they walk through uh, the main slate. Any other plugs you'd like to get in here?
2: No, man, that's good. It's been fun. Hope everybody has a good week. Definitely hit me up if you guys have questions or want feedback on any lineups. Always happy to help.
1: Yep. Uh, appreciate you guys hanging out. Uh, we will be back on Monday as always for the lineup review. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend and, uh, we'll see you on Monday.